Hello, everyone. I am Dern Beauty 2018, and I hope you are here to join us for episode 10 of Burned Ambition season two, because tonight is very special. We're starting right on time, so give you some time to log in um, while I tell you just a little bit about what we're doing tonight. And we, Cousin Ozzy, brought in one of his dear friends who he will tell you a little bit more about in a moment. Um, her name is Virginia Garner, and she's a 34 year nurse. And we are going to get to interview her this evening. She's worked in the Burn Center. 9-11 triage. I will let her give you her credentials. But for us here on National Burn Awareness Week, I think it is truly an honor to have someone on the other side of, of, of us if you're a burn survivor like me. I know I have some caregivers out there and this is gonna be very special for you as well um, because accepting care is difficult. If you are listening to us uh, later, recorded, just know that we appreciate you watching. If you're watching live right now, um, please, and you're on YouTube, please subscribe, follow, like, comment, share. The more you do, the more people we get to reach um, and offer them help. So we're still waiting for some people to log on, and I'm going to bring both Miss Virginia Garner and Ozzy on screen. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Thank you all for Wonderful. joining Wonderful. I'm so happy to have you. Ozzie, thank you for inviting me. I feel uh, really honored being here. So thank you so much, Tanya. I am so happy to have you here. I've not gotten the opportunity to speak to a burn nurse um, post burns, post hospital. Um, so I'm very happy to have you. Ozzy, how would you like to introduce Miss Garner? Because I know she's a dear Oh friend. my goodness, man. I've known Virginia and I, we've been best friends since the seventh grade. <laughs> it's like, I think the longest relationship ever yep. in, in my own life, right? <laughs> and yeah, she is, you know, she, as you mentioned, she's a, a nurse and she's been my best friend and uh, we're just so thrilled to have her here. And the one thing that I have learned again and again and again and again from her, because one of one of our missions, Virginia, just so that uh, that you know and that everyone else is aware, Burned Ambition is all about healing. It's literally all about healing. Burned Beauty is all about beauty. It's all about seeing that internal beauty and actually having the the methods and the you know, the creams and the style and everything beautiful, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And we get to come in here. This is our sanctuary. This is where healing happens. This is where we get to bear our souls. We get to show our wounds and we get to sometimes we cry together. And we also laugh this profoundly. And so two of the things that Virginia has always taught me is gratitude and it is literally about understanding that when I have been in a really, really tough spot, I have been so grateful to Virginia's kindness. Yeah. And then it's acceptance, right? When I was at my absolute lowest, which we've, we've spoken about here, 
That's the other thing is that our uh, podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do our best not to uh, not to say anything that shouldn't be said. But since I'm talking about myself, and I have spoken about it, um, when I was at my darkest, at the absolute, the dark night of the soul, Virginia provided me with uh, airline tickets to literally move myself all the way to the Bronx and New York. And I had to accept, I had to go through the process of accepting that loving kindness, accepting that. And I'm just here to tell everyone that when we are in a tough spot, acceptance is also tough. Yes. But as you're going to hear in our story today, there's so many wonderful uh, twists and turns but we're going to start seeing that gratitude is literally the language and it is the gateway into emotional well-being and healing and yeah. flourishing even beyond your wildest dreams. It, so yeah. I'm personally grateful to Virginia for her unwavering support and friendship. And thank you She's again for coming out, you know, and throughout the years and the role that you've played in my own healing. And now... Thanks to Tanya, we get to multiply this to thousands upon thousands of people. What a blessing it is to have you. And I'm Thank super you. excited to get started, Virginia. So, oh, I'm so excited. I tell you, as <laughs> I am so excited because uh, I don't know about the rest of y'all, but if you've been in the hospital and you've been you know, whether it's burns or cancer, or whatever your your tragedy or, or your, not tragedy, your um, problem has been, do you not find yourself waiting for the nurse? Do you not tell yourself like, oh, this hurts, but I'm mm -hmm. just going to wait for the nurse to come? Unless, you know, you only buzz the nurse if you have to because she's busy because when she comes, she's going to fix everything. So I feel like I said that to myself more than I said or will let me wait for the doctor because the doctor's only coming in the morning for the rounds. The nurse continues to come and she's a lifeline. And I just yeah. want to know how that, uh, you're the lifeline for the patient. I, I know I'm not the only one that feels that way, but tell me about yourself. Tell me how you, where did you start? No, where did you start in nursing? And what made so you want to be the nurse? Okay, well, so before I even start talking about myself, I want to talk about you first, Tanya, oh. because I think that what you're doing is remarkable. I think that yeah. it, you know, there is a level of courageousness and connection that you have, courageousness for yourself as well as for others, um, that is so necessary and necessary in the world, especially for a person who's been through a lot. Um, many people would be, you know, just decide to curl up in a ball and not do anything, but what you've done is the opposite. You put yourself out there in the hopes that you would reach anyone who could listen and gain from what you, what you know, the information that you have. And you know, bravo to you. You're you're a very strong lady, and and you know, and I just I I'm, I already love you because of that. Like I can see that, and you know, you. um, you're welcome. You're welcome. And Ozzy, you know, what can I say about Ozzy? <laughs> Thanks for the great introduction. Um, well, I will. Thank you. I will, you're welcome. You're welcome. And um, I, I will say this: 
when you talk about nurses being the person that you would you know rely on when you were in the hospital it makes complete sense i mean nurses truly are at the front line and something that i say often that can be taken a little bit controversial for some people is that the reason that a person gets admitted to the hospital is because they need a nurse at the bedside overnight if you did not, you know, other than, I mean, like a real admission where you're in a bed for at least 24 hours, if you didn't need a nurse, I think everything could be done outpatiently. You know what I mean? You could go to a clinic, you could go to a doctor's office, you could have outpatient surgeries in the hospital. Many things can happen outpatient, but the minute that you need someone to manage and monitor you overnight, that's the nurse and that's when you get hospitalized. And so it's not surprising to me that, you know, you have this philosophy that you were in the hospital and it was the nurse that you wanted to talk to. It makes completely logical sense. That's amazing. And yeah, that's, you know, so when you say that it resonated with me so much. So yeah, I just. You're 100% right. It is when you need, because I have had outpatient surgeries and those are times when they could do the surgery and I did not need a morphine drip and I did not need to be monitored all night. I could come no. back in a week and get a stitch out, but most of my surgeries, I did need a, a nurse. an overnight stay. Okay. Okay. And most yeah. of them were in the, in the beginning, I'm hoping I'm about to start surgeries again. I'm hoping that they'll be all outpatient, but um, okay. they were really four or five days. They were doing a lot in the beginning. So the nurses were, I knew their rotations, you know, it's like, who's coming today? When are you coming back? You're coming for three days, right? You know, just all that. Cause you, you're just, you feel so close to, to your nurses and not to mention you're very vulnerable. You know, yes. I, mean, I felt like, okay, I'm naked all the time. Why am I naked all the time? I just want my robe, but you know, you've got, you've got burns, you've got to be bathed every day and you feel vulnerable. And yes. the nurse makes you feel less vulnerable than the doctor does. I don't know. I'm glad to hear that someone helped you to feel less vulnerable because under any circumstances in the hospital, especially with burn wounds that you truly, depending on where your burns are, you are very exposed. Wow. Um, it's a vulnerable place to be. I mean, I'm a registered nurse for so many years. I've been hospitalized three different times for surgeries. And it's a, and as a nurse, I am vulnerable. And there have been times where I've needed my support to ask the right questions and advocate for me. So it's just human nature. I mean, we're super stressed when we're in pain, super stressed, worried. Having to focus on just healing is enough than to have to think about all of the minutia that's involved, you know, with, with care. So I hope that someone did help you feel less vulnerable, um, you know, and, and protected your dignity as much as possible. There was who said, she said, I have a special method for doing a bath. It'll be very relaxing. Don't worry about it. Nobody's coming in. I've got the special method. I do it all the time. It'll just close your eyes. It'll be very relaxing. And it was just so much better. It was, it was the same mm -hmm. thing. But she had me just close my eyes and accept it. Like, it just 
accept it. It's going to happen. You've got to clean your, you've got to be clean as a burn survivor. Um, but things like that that y'all do is just is uh, amazing. My daughter's a nurse too. Oh, is she? That's great. That's yeah. Great. Congratulations to her. I'm proud of her, and I hope to see her sitting where you are one day. So, you started. Um, was there anything that made you want to be a nurse in particular? Well, my my choice for nursing was not the conventional route. <laughs> it was not. I can't really say that it was a calling, and that's the truth. Um, my mom worked at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, right. um, the same place that Ozzy got treated when he sustained yeah. his trauma. And, um, you know, back then, uh, children and direct family members, like if you had um, children or siblings, I believe also, um, if of a person who was an employee at the hospital, if they wanted a free nursing education, they could have it because the hospital had a diploma school. And so I wasn't really sure what to do. I had been in community college. I was kind of, you know, trying to figure out my life. And my mom wisely came to me and was like, you know, you could go to nursing school for free if you want. And so I thought, you know, I don't know if that's where I'm going to land for the rest of my life, but I can at least start there. And so, um, you know, I, I went into that nursing program and, um, you okay. I am. I'm not the best swallower. I try to play it off. <laughs> okay. Anyway. And so that's how I ended up in nursing school. I, that was my initial foray. And um, my first job out of nursing school was the burn center at Jackson Memorial Hospital. I was there for almost two years. I was there as a staff member for a year. And then I would go back and do what we call per diem where, you know, as they needed me, I would fill in for nurses gotcha. that, you know, that were away, you know. And so I was there for about two years, for about two years. And I'm still very close with many of the nurses that, you know, that I worked with. And then fast forward, that was 1988. Fast forward to 2000, when I moved to New York, the mm-hmm. director of the burn center that um, that hired me was the same nurse that hired me out of nursing school in Miami. Wow. So I kind of followed him <laughs> there. And, um, you know, he hired me for his burn center at New York Presbyterian um, Wild Cornell Hospital. Um, it's the William Randall Hearst Burn Center. So that's where that's where I landed, you know, for my second foray in burns. Um, but yeah, that's and how I ended then, up. And then how did that play into, that was in 2000. And then, you know, I, I'm, I've been, I was telling you before the show that when, for some reason, as I thought of September 11th, um, when I heard that you had worked triage during it, even though four September 11th have passed since I've been burned, for some reason, there is a lot of gravity to it uh, today. And I thought, my God, what these people went through and what you must have had to deal with. And um, as, as to burns, I don't know how you, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so that was a really hard time, as you can imagine, just the stress of, of the gravity of all of it, 
You know, it was, right. it was the fact that we were waiting for patients. We were waiting mm -hmm. for patients that never came. Some came, some didn't. Um, and then also the gravity of, you know, we're under attack as a country. Like there was a, it was a very heavy, like I can't come up with another word, but it was heavy. You know what I mean? And so um, okay. for me, I mean, I had worked the night before because I was on the schedule. So I'd worked my 12 hour shift the night before and I was scheduled to come back the following night. And so um, I had gone back to my apartment, which is adjacent to the, was adjacent to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I just routinely would turn on the news to watch a little news in the morning, you know, before going to bed because I had to get up again to go to work, right? And so that's where I saw the attacks happen. And, you know, I, it took me a little while to sort of snap out of the shock of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I lived in a high rise, so I went up to the roof because I knew I could see lower Manhattan from there. Um, you know, then I went back into my apartment. I was concerned about family members that worked in the area. Um, but then I went, I just stopped and I was like, I have to go back to work. And so I, you know, I ran out and I went back to work and, and I couldn't take my own patient because there are laws um, in nursing about not being able to work for 24 hours straight. Like it would have literally been another shift, but I, you know, helped as much as I could. I, you know, set up rooms, I helped with triaging, I relieved nurses that needed a break, um, you know, cause it was pretty intense. And um, I did as much as I could then went back home, napped, and then went for my actual shift. And so it that was my experience. Now, when it came to the actual patients, it was tough. It was tough because everyone hoped that there would be more people. And, you know, and the whole unit, like it was a un, uh, an ICU and a step-down unit, right? And so everyone that wasn't highly, highly critical, we moved to other ICUs and other floors so that we could have the space for all of the people that we were anticipating would come. And we did get some, we got some, you know, some patients, but not unfortunately what we'd hoped for. Not as many, so, yeah, there were so many people. Yeah. And I was only there for like a couple of weeks after that, because honestly I had been hired for a different position right before 9-11 happened. And, you know, so I was there for like three weeks, you know, um, and then after that, I went into my case management job. I had decided to change jobs because I was working nights and I really needed the days. I was new in New York um, yeah. and I wanted my life to feel more, more normal. You know, right. I needed to connect to people and see the sunlight and, you know, all of that. Right. And, and so, um, as, as, you know, befallen the you know we're at war right like you said it's terrifying it was a t I remember how terrifying it was and the thing I didn't realize back then is that these people are going to a third unit mm -hmm. yeah it was it was you realize that that's not a burn somebody did anybody think you know when the people get out they're going to a burn unit or a, yeah. or a step down room because I know I um, was in both. I was in the burn ICU. I know you don't know all of my story, but I was burned by a fire pit and then I was in a coma for two months. Mm. And while they replaced my face and my chest and my arms and back with skin grafts. And 
Um, then when I awakened from the coma, um, I remember them saying, okay, you're going to go to the step-down room. And I never really knew what that meant. I knew it wasn't the ICU because the ICU was very small and my husband couldn't sleep in the room with me. It was just enough room for the bed and the nurse to work around you and the equipment. And then the step-down room was bigger, but it wasn't a regular room, right? It's something, what does the step-down room mean? Like, so when a person's critically ill, when the person has to be either um, intubated, you know, where they put the tube down into, you know, down to here for it to feed oxygen to the lungs, um, they need to be in an ICU. And so, and there's a lot more direct care from the nurse that happens on a 24-hour basis. Gotcha. So that's, you know, the critically ill patient. When we say step down, it tends to mean that we're stepping down from having been critically ill. In other words, you're doing better enough to be yes. in a regular bed and to still continue to receive, you know, the care that um, a nurse would provide. Oh, and I should say, not all people in, in critical units and in, in ICUs are intubated. Sometimes they just need to be monitored extremely closely for other reasons. Um, but, you know, at that point, once you're ready, we say, okay, we're going to move the patient to step down. And you might be on the same floor. Um, that's how it was for both ICUs that I worked in. You know, the, it was just down the hall, essentially. And um, then you had your own room. More visitors could come a little more liberally. Um, you know, yes, your husband could stay. Uh, you know, there's a different routine when yeah. you're in step down. You're still getting the burn care. But maybe you're in a position now to be able to uh, actually get into a tub or shower as opposed to having your wound care done in bed. Yeah, um, but I get it. It was like yeah. I going to the step-down room and they started wheeling me through the hall, like you said. And I remember some of the nurses, a lot of them were talking. They were like, oh, you're moving. You made it. And they were clapping. I, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, y'all are clapping, right? And uh, and mm. like, and one lady going, Miss Nice and Buck, I took care of you so many times. And when I heard her voice, I mm. recognized it from one of my dreams. Okay. Had, she had a very distinct voice, like a very feminine voice. And when I heard her voice, I was like, oh, she was in my dream, but she wasn't a dream. And that they were clapping. I'm like, yeah, you're going to the step down room. You made it. You made it. You made it. And the chaplain came by and saw me being moved and he stopped and he did a dance. Oh. He was the most mm -hmm. They were cheering you on. They probably had been cheering you on the whole time. So wonderful. You know? yes. So it was a time to celebrate. All time, right? Yeah. It was, it was a time to celebrate. Yeah. And and it's yeah, so yeah. real. It's so genuine. It's like it's something you'll never, ever understand until it happens to you. Like how? So, mm -hmm. you're, so your memory of your hospital stay started once you left the ICU. Is that when it started or did you remember being in the ICU? I did not know I was in the ICU. Um, after I left my house, when I got into the ambulance, 
the guys started working very frantically and I didn't understand why because I was standing up talking. I was, I'd been confused. I'd said to my husband, maybe I need to go to the doctor tomorrow. I was confused. I was ready to go lay down in bed and just die oh, basically. I, di- I did not know that he had already called 911. And so mm. I, I had decided that, you know, hey, I'm gonna live. I'm not on fire anymore because I had accelerant on me and I couldn't put mm. myself out. I had lighter fluid on me. and um, But when that guy started working so frantically, I got scared again, you know, like in the movies, they're cutting the clothes off. And I, was, I said to him, am I going to die? And he said, no. And I said, would you say that even if you thought I was going to? And he said, yes. And then the next thing he said was push fentanyl. Or I, it was push fentanyl or, and, or something. And I just remember blackness. Mm. And then I, the only time I woke up was at the first hospital I went to, which was not did not have a burn unit. And they were intubating me when I woke up. Mm. I, I didn't know that's what they were doing. But I opened the eyes and I saw the light. And I thought, oh my God, don't go to the light, right? I remember, I remember that. Don't go mm. to the light. Tell him, don't go to the light. But now I know it was just the, the light yeah. of my head. Beyond that, everything started as a dream, a nightmare. Me looking for my family. And I remember every dream, every night, wow. everything okay. that I had. But I did not know that I was in the hospital. I did not know. I was living my life outside of my body. It was, a, I was living another life and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't, where are my husband and my kids? Because I had a job, somebody's hurting me every day. I know somebody is hurting me. So I'm actually feeling the pain of the debris. Is it debridement or debris? Debridement, yes. Debridement. Yes. I'm actually feeling the pain of that through the coma, through the mm. paralytics, through the everything. I remember, dreaming every day and I would walk down the staircase that I've told Ozzy about. In my mind, I would walk down this dark staircase mm. and when I got to the bottom, I would oh, just put my hands over my head. Mm. This was a dream that you'd have walking down the staircase? Every day. Wow. Every day. And I must have been hearing the nurse's voice come in. The nurses coming and knowing. So immediately. So I must have been hearing and not understanding because when I woke up, I went to sleep in December and I woke up in February and my nurse's name was January. And she said, do you know what month it is? And I said, December. And she said, no. And I was like, you know, I just had no other guess because I knew it was December. And she said, it's February. And she said, I'm January and it's February. Mm. And that was the first time you spoke after having been extubated, you think? They removed the tube and... Yeah, I think she was the... She may not have been the first person I spoke to. My daughter came into the room while they were waiting for me to, to come out of the coma. And she got there that day. And she said, she said, she walked in and said, hello, mom. And she always called me mom, always called me mom. And and I said, hello, Shelly. And she walked out. My husband wasn't in the room and she walked out to the nurse's station and said, "Um, has she been doing that? And they were like, what? And she said, talking. 
And, and they were, and everybody came in. We ran out. Everybody came. They're like talking, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Excitement, excitement. She spoke. Yeah. Yay. Right. Yeah. And um, so that was my memory. And that's what, you know, a lot of the nurses, I'll never forget January. If you're out there and you see me and you see this, I'll never forget Miss January who woke me up in February. <laughs> and um, and mm. she was kind to me. I was begging for an ice chip, which I was not su- supposed to really have. And I can't say where it came from. Well, actually, I got permission from the speech therapist to have um, an ice cube because I begged and cried so feverishly. I, I just thought I was not going to make it. Mm. And they thought, mm. I think she felt like I would not feel well if I didn't. <sighs> Get that ice chip, mm-hmm. and so I tell people now, you know, what's your ice chip? Oh, what is wow. it? What's you your better? ice chip? What's the thing yes. that makes you feel better? Yeah. What's your ice yeah. chip? What What is it? Because for me, when I I would when I got that ice chip, it was just like heaven. It was heavenly. In your mouth that you don't know what the mouth is, what it feels yeah. like. And my mouth was in a in such a way that. You couldn't even put mouthwash in it um, because my lips didn't touch. So if you poured something on one side of my mouth, it'd come out the other. Come out the other, yes. But yes. the nurses yes. figured out how to take care of me, how to just rub my mouth with it. Yes, yes. And, and you know, how to give me a few ice chips. And, you know, it was a, I consider the speech therapist a nurse. Um, I guess she's beyond that, but she was in the nurse position. She came in to see me every day and, you know, put out blue applesauce in my mouth and then check my trach mm-hmm. to see if there was blue applesauce in it. Coming out, mm-hmm. yes, to make sure that you were yeah. swallowing correctly. And that's a fail. So, right, that's a fail. You can't have it. That is a fail, no. That was a fail. That went on for eight months. But that ice chip, what's your ice chip? I, I ask people a lot now that have seen me talk your about. Ice chip. Wow. Well, mm. our, from the nursing standpoint, I mean, a big part of our focus, of course, first and foremost, is to save lives. You know, we're there to do everything possible that we need to, to help the patient survive and survive as best as possible. But another component that's just as important is providing family members with what they need, Um, providing communication because your family and your friends are worried about you, Um, providing the family with access as we could, because, you know, there are times where the family just couldn't be there, but there are times where the family can be and allowing the space for family members to be able to come and ask questions and hold your hand, you know what I mean? And and be there for you. And I mean, I also had small, you know, babies as, as, as patients. And so, and in the case of the babies, their moms, you know, would, would be there with them, you know, Um, not overnight, not overnight. They could just stay later. We kind of gave them a little more leeway, you know, because, you know, it's a baby, you know? And so, um, you know, it, it was about reassuring mom, reassuring dad, um, you know, there there are many scenarios like that where the family just really wants to know what's happening. It's a scary time. The person's in the ICU and they have questions that they need answers. Teaching the family members how to enter the room, to put the gown on, to wash their hands, 
to have gloves on when necessary, to have a, a cap on. And back in my day, it was, you know, you even covered your feet with, you know, the right. paper shoes, you know, all of that, um, all in the, um, in the hopes of protecting the patient from getting inf infected, you I know. Think, I, I talk and to so, that a lot, you know, and a lot of us don't know until we're burned that if you've, mm. if you've survived the initial burn, your problem is surviving the infections that follow. Yes. And oh, yes. Uh, I'm sure yeah. that's a lot of other things in addition to burns, but you know, the infections that follow are terrible. I was septic at one point and just oh, man. also, and that was later, that was after I had gone to physical therapy and I had to come back to the hospital because fungus had gotten on my scalp. Okay. Septic, but they didn't know <laughs> that that's what was causing it because wow. my hair was growing back and it was short and thick. They nobody thought, look at her hair, that there are actual pieces of fungus in my hair. Like, and you pull them off, there's blood. It's disgusting. I can't talk about it. I get really upset. So <laughs> fungus. What happens sometimes is that when a person's on a lot of antibiotics, just like. Just like mm. when a person has, let's say that you're a female and you have a UTI, right? Mm. And the doctor puts you on antibiotics. Mm. And some people will take, you know, will eat yogurt, take a probiotic. They'll do different things to decrease the likelihood of getting a yeast infection. Which is, yeast is, is fungal, right? And so that's what happens. You've gotten rid of all of this natural bacteria that your body needs in yeah. order to get rid of the bad bacteria. Right, but then there's a, a possibility of getting a fungus on top of it, so that might be what happened to you. I got cladosporium on me, which normally does not colonize human beings, and it stayed wow. a year and a half to get rid of it. I thought it was going wow. to wow, wow, okay. and it, well, it was cladosporium, strep, and MRSA on my scalp. Yeah, now, and that's when I that's why I originally wore wigs, even though I have hair, but my hair had grown back. And then I lost it again. And, um, but that's why I did it. But so, you know, with the idea of acceptance and how does that, you know, being a nurse and being in the position where the family is there and you have someone who's as sick as I was, I'm unconscious, I'm in a coma for two months. Do you find the acceptance from the family? Are the, kindness or do you find or is it challenging as a caregiver to, to you know what I'm saying to provide what maybe they expect you to provide more than there is to be provided or is it just a matter of letting it be what it is to to have the family accept your help so when it comes to the word acceptance specifically, um, initially when a person gets sick or a family member of a person gets sick, there's an amount of shock that goes along with it. And it takes a little while for the person to have acceptance that something is happening. Now, what, when I say acceptance, I'm talking about their own yeah. self-acceptance. This is the reality. Yeah. This is what's happening, et cetera, versus them accepting care from you. That's a different kind of acceptance, right. 
right? right. And so, um, so there's that aspect of it. And that takes time. And for every individual, it's in their own time. But in the meanwhile, when it comes to the care itself, if, if that's what you were addressing, I'm not sure what you were addressing. Their help as a, when they are the family member accepting that you were there to help. Because I know sometimes there's anger in the rooms. I could hear it after I woke up. Mm. There was anger in my room, thank goodness. But I could hear anger. Um, yeah. I can tell you more. I want you to do that. And there's nothing more to be. Their anger can come when a person's afraid. And when a person lacks knowledge also, you don't know what's happening. Um, yeah. Things are not happening the way that you want them to happen. So you get angry. Like that's something that can happen in any hospital setting, not just in an ICU. Right. And so what's important is to provide the person who is anxious for, first of all, to recognize that they're anxious, to know that they're going to be anxious, to, to see that there's anxiety present and to provide any information that would help them to feel more calm. Sometimes it's just a matter of listening to the person in their state of anxiety. Right. Sometimes it's just sort of stepping back and hearing everything that they're telling you and then repeating back what you've heard to make sure that you're clear and then providing some sort of reassurance that would allow them to know, okay, someone's going to take steps. And then you don't leave it there as a nurse. Once you mm. follow through with whatever the issue is that's concerning the family member, you go back to that person and you let them, you give them an update. And sometimes they're not happy with the update. <laughs> sometimes it's, you know, it's, you're doing the best that you can and, and, you know, you can give them advice as to another person that they can speak to as far as a chain of command. Let's see if there's something administrative, you know, or the nurse can also help with that. But it truly is about reassurance, 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 about um, about being as calm as possible, about mm -hmm. listening, as me as the, the, the person who's the professional, it's about listening. And it's about, you know, um, providing whatever that you can to help the person feel reassured. Because it's a scary time. It's a scary time under circumstances that are not as, as intense as a burn yeah. ICU is. And I, you know, for people who are listening, I mm. would imagine that most of the people who are listening are in some way associated with burns. Either they've been burned, they have a family member who's burned, they, they're a person who has provided burn care, you know, there's mm. some, so there might be a familiarity, familiarity with, with what I'm gonna say, but I'm going to tell you this, this is how intense it is. When I went back into the burn center, after having, you know, it had been at least 10 years since I had taken care of a victim of a burn injury, right? And so at my particular hospital, I had to go through a set of courses within the hospital past that training. You know, it wasn't like going back to school, if you will. It wasn't like being graded that way, but I had to prove that I was efficient in what I knew and what I, what I had to do for the patient. And so I was in this course with other ICU nurses and the other, I was the only nurse going into the burn unit. And with everything that the professor instructed, um, they would say, oh yes, these ventilator settings are this for these ICU patients, but for burns, it's more intense. 
Right. For for this, there's this threat of infection, mm. but for burn, it's more. Everything was bigger for mm. you know for the instruction for me because burns are very intense. I think it's the toughest I see you. I really do. Well, and think- so you know it, that you are here is is you know is it's just it's this wonderful you know miracle and also care and also you being proactive about you following through with whatever it is that they told you to do yeah so that you could be here and so you could have this podcast i i cannot stress that enough um because it's truly it's a massive process that you've been through that you know it's not for the faint of heart it's not for family members it's also hard for family members as well you know and so, um, you know, bravo to you, bravo to you for creating this platform and for, you know, showing up. You're showing yeah, up no. for a population that needed it, you know. Really needs it. Yeah. We're underrepresented, I think. And as I laid, when I woke up from the COVID, as I laid in that step down room, mm. the only person I could think of who had a burned face was Freddy Krueger. Mm. Wow. Well, yes, man. Now, there are wow. plenty of beautiful burn survivors that are influencers that have burn faces as well, but I didn't know them because it's not mainstream to no. know them. What is mainstream is that people with facial differences or scars or burns mm-hmm. are the antagonists in Hollywood. That's a yes. new thing that I'm not delighted about but <laughs> you know well i want to say two things about that first of all you are one of those beautiful people and i don't say that yes <laughs> i'm not just trying to throw you know i don't know stars and sparkles at you i'm telling you you're beautiful i can see i could see it the minute you came on and then yeah. the other thing i wanted to say is regarding how burns are depicted in hollywood i always just shake my head because i'm like that's not what a burn victim looks like and right. why are they you know i say it, i've been saying it for 20 30 years that's not that's that's not that's not reality at all and so um yeah I, I totally could see how it would frustrate you when i looked at my face in the mirror you know i jump up from my husband putting me out and um I had thought I was going to die. I decided because stop, drop, and roll doesn't work with um, accelerant on accelerant you. Accelerant on you, yeah. He knew that, right? But now on National Burn Awareness Week, if you guys are going to be looking later and you need to listen, it does not work with accelerant. You need someone to extinguish the flames or water. I guess water would work, but I didn't get mm-hmm. to that. I just started saying the Lord's, I thought, well, this is how I'm going to die. I started saying the Lord's Prayer, and I got halfway through, and then I said, well, is this, God, is this really how I'm supposed to die? I'm 45 years old, and I'm laying on my um, driveway, and I'm burning alive. I, I, I realized I was burning alive because I was I was very alive. I was just on fire, you know? Mm. And and I can, you know, it's in my eyes, it's in my nose, it's burning my nose off. It's you're breathing it in. I'm breathing it. Yes, I'm inhaling it. And God answered. It was my husband's voice though. I didn't realize I was speaking out loud. But God answered. And it was my husband who said, I got you, baby. I got you. And he was putting me out that I couldn't feel him. My nerves were 
already gone. Damaged, already yeah. Gone. yeah. Already, I couldn't feel him at all. But he was putting me out and burning himself up to the elbow doing it. And he's six foot four. Mm. So, you know, that's what I think. You know, you're getting mm. situations like that coming in to your job every day. Was it too... Did you find it to be like, I, I wonder what, with my daughter, because she's in a pediatric ER, how do you manage that? Because I think that-, that You mean emotionally? Is that emotionally, you how do you manage it? Because I think that it could help us on the other side. There's a lot of emotions to manage on our side too. How do, how do you professionally manage that? So I have to tell you that for me and for, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for myself and- other nurses that I've worked with that are still friends. Um, we felt so proud of the fact that we helped someone survive. And when it came to the pain of burn care, um, we medicated people very heavily. Like when I left the burn unit, I had to relearn I did a little bit of patient care before going into administrative work after right. leaving the burn unit. And I had to relearn how to give medications because I was so used to expecting more. Like, what are you ordering this little bit of medication for? The patient yes. had surgery. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I was like, you know, that's true. This person, your metabolism's racing when you're in a burn. You're, you know, there's all these um, chemical things going on that, would warrant you needing more medication. And so we were very liberal, honestly, especially for patients in the ICU. We didn't want you to feel like we wanted to minimize the pain as much as possible. So much pain. Um, you know, and so I that is not a component of this. I can tell you that the areas where I felt like I needed to have a chat with friends, and I say friends as my nursing colleagues that were also burn IC nurses, burn nurses. Um, you know, we'd have to sort of huddle up when it came to child abuse. That was the hardest ones for us. Mm. The little kids that came in, you know, not because of an accident, but because of abuse. That was one where, you know, when those situations arose, we we needed to, you know, to talk amongst ourselves. Um, you know, but it didn't stop us from providing the care that we needed to. And that actually, I, I want to mention something else, if I may, because I have my own burn, personal burn story. I know that Ozzy has talked about his burn story, right? You know, yeah. I maybe there. So my burn story happened when I was four years old. So I was mm -hmm. four and my older brother is two years older than I am. And my mom and, and I'm sorry, my, my brother and I slept in a full-size bed together. And then my little brother also shared that room and slept in a crib. So he was probably, I don't know, one or two. Um, and so back then, vaporizers, we're talking about you know awareness. And I know that they're made differently now, but this is one of those lessons, you know, Back then, when a kid was sick and you put a vaporizer because they had a yeah. stuffy nose and you wanted to decongest them, you put this vaporizer and it was the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And I so the vaporizer was a glass container 
that had sort of a, a tube, if you will, that sat in it that was electrically, you know, it was connected on electrical cord and it would cause the actual um, water in the glass to boil, to bubble, yeah. to boil. Oh, really? Like nowadays, it's hot. not yeah. like that. Nowadays, there's steam that's emitted without having to boil the water. Oh, really? Back then, the water boiled. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I, we talk about being HIPAA compliant. I, I got permission from my brother before telling this story. Mm. And he was like, of course you can tell it. I was like, you know, we have to respect everyone's trauma. You know right. what I mean? And I just want to make sure. So, yes, but this is my trauma story, even though he's the one that was injured. And so, um, you know, my brother is a jokester. Ozzy knows that. He was a jokester when he was a kid. He's still a jokester. It hasn't changed. <laughs> And so he was entertaining himself and me jumping back and forth across the floor. Oh, man. And, and, you know, my mom would yell, stop, you know, jumping across the floor, Jerry. Stop, you know. And he'd listen for a minute. And this was, we were, we were already about to go to sleep. So we were in pajamas. It's winter. We're wearing flannel. Okay. okay. So when he jumped across that cord... And mm. on one of his jumps, he got tangled and the entire pot of boiling water landed and soaked up into his pajamas. And he's like, oh, God. Wow. So that mm. I witnessed that. And it's a memory I have always had. But it's interesting how the mind works, because when I went to work in the burn unit, I didn't associate one with another. Right. I didn't even, honestly, I didn't think about it until years later where I was like, oh, I saw this happen to my brother, even though it was a memory that was present. And I just want to say that we all have our trauma stories. Some of our, our, some of our scars are external and some of them are internal. Yes. yes. And, you know, <clears throat> that is one that is, I'm sure that that influenced me in some way. You know, um, it my brother was brought home. He didn't have to spend the night in an ICU. It was his leg that got burned, but you I mean, know, he had to sleep in a separate bed later, you know, because I, I, they didn't want me to roll over onto him or anything like that. You know what I mean? As kids. Right. Um, and I remember, you know, him being brought home and I remember, you know, him, you know, having to sort of, we had to like take care of his leg, etc. But yeah, that was something that was truly like stamped in my memory. So, um, you know, I say this because, you know, we all have our stories. We all, you know, and that's not, I'm not trying to make light of anything because all of it is serious. <laughs> it's all serious, you know. Oh, yeah. And as parents, I just want to say out there, you know, we tend to think that when we tell our children, don't do this thing, that they're going to not do it. But children are curious. And I can tell you for, as from a burn, being a burn nurse, Mm -hmm. I hear the words so often, but I told them not to do this, but I told them. And I'm like, you have to take the danger away. From yes. That. You can't you trust. I'm not telling you not to trust your children, people. Don't write Tanya. Don't write Tanya. No, y'all can write me because I'm going to take the danger away. <laughs> you have to remove the danger because children are curious. Yeah. What do you got to say about that, Ozzy? Right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Oh, yeah, curiosity. It's natural and it's born in us. And, and uh, you know, specifically mm-hmm. on National Burn Awareness Week, it, I am always more heartbroken when I hear about children with burns. Children, and yes. And then I feel yes. just as heartbroken for the parents when it is. Oh, yes. The whole family. Common, the yeah. skull injury, y'all. You know, do you know yeah. how your coffee is at the boil temperature is 200 degrees you know yes. how hot she is 195 degrees mm-hmm. you know how a little hand can pull oh yes man the heartbeat the heartbeat yeah. you know it's not about in the yeah in, in the bronx every winter remember virginia you know some building would catch fire and it yeah. was typically a little one not a oh. little one, multiple little ones yeah. at once. Is this that because of victims or Christmas trees or yeah, sometimes yeah. It's Christmas trees? Sometimes it's oh, we don't Heaters. have enough heat in the house. Let's yeah. you know turn on a, a, a foot heater and the foot heater. Yeah. Um, I call them foot heaters. You know the small space heaters. Little yeah, space yeah, the space heater. Yeah. And then somehow something got close enough yeah. to the space heater, it would ignite. You know, it would create massive. You know, catastrophes. There's catastrophes. no, you know, of, of like, you know, eight children have died. Or yeah. Ten children. Like, it's not, in a this heartbeat. is something that has happened several times in the past 10 years. Several times. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Tell you, we're going to wind down shortly for the hour, but I will tell you one thing that really makes me feel um, a lot better. And that is, that, you know, I said at the beginning, it took me four years to realize that the people from September 11th were burned. Oh, they, yes. They were, and they were burned with... Jet fumes. Jet fuel. To me, it's, it's hard for me to say it because I had accelerant on me and I can't imagine this mm-hmm. particular accelerant yeah. on you. I can't imagine the heat level. and And I didn't realize that until I was planning. Well, think about that heat that it took to, to cause those buildings to collapse, to for the metal to, to melt to a point yeah. where it would pancake. So, yeah. you know, and I have a dear friend whose husband died on September 11th. And just as a demonstration, she, you know, she's also a nurse. She, um, they gave the victims' families this this plaque that was like, you know, one of the things she received the plaque about this big and maybe that thick. That was part of the steel of the building with an inscription on it. And she said to me, "I want you to see how this feels." And she just clumped it in my hand, and my hand just went dunk. Oh, so it was that little oh. thing. It was so heavy. Heavy. And Very so, you know, it just, yeah, it's, it, when, when she handed that to me, I just was like, I, she was like, can you imagine that oh. this one little piece is this heavy and what happened took down those buildings? And I, was like, mm-hmm. I can't imagine because the heat, I mean, not the fire that burned me was very hot. I had third and fourth degree burns, which means I lost some of my tissue, lots of muscle and things. And well, uh, in addition to skin. Uh, yeah. One of my jobs was to relieve nurses that were in the rooms too long because the smell of jet fumes were in the rooms with the nurses. 
And so, yeah, so I go, I went into several rooms in between setting up rooms and doing other things to give to them a break. First, you? I beg your pardon? Did you have to clean that jet fuel off first? By the time I got in the rooms, they had already gotten the patients. Like everything had been removed and the patient was intubated. So, so are burn survivors and you're like me and you're thinking why in the world is she talking about September 11th? It is because I am just now realizing that the biggest group of burn survivors and burn loss that I know in my lifetime happened on that day, happened on September 11th. You know, mm. I posted statistics yesterday that mm. there's approximately 3,500 children and adults die every year from, uh, don't survive their burn injuries every year, like, like, like mm. I did, but this is thousands mm. in a day. There, some one of the, one of the patients that was there, and I didn't work with her very much because I was only there for like three weeks after 9-11 happened. She wrote a book. She had a bestseller. And so I can Google um, her name and provide it to you if you'd like to read her book because yeah. it's a lot about her experiences in the burn unit and afterwards. And, you know. It just it never occurred to me that, and I don't, I don't remember that being something that was talked about a lot as we were watching the news. Maybe I just yeah. don't remember, but I don't remember. I don't think that it was talked a lot about. No. about hey, this is how we treat the burn survivors from mm. September 11th, because that's what we had from September 11th, our burn survivors and, and heroes. Um, so thank you so much for for joining us. I do want to ask you one last question. What's next for you? Oh, so what are you working on now? So right now I'm working on a, um, a business. I stopped working um, in New York a few months, two months before the pandemic hit actually, with the intention of moving here to Florida to be closer to my family as well as to develop a business. And so, um, you know, the past couple of years have been spent taking courses, <laughs> learning how to run a business. And I'm, I'm actually creating um, a business that is uh, uh, for people to, to help people with their metabolic health. Um, I have a broth that I've created and patented that um, is for intermittent fasting that I'm working on putting out there. You know, it should be out on the market in the next month or so. Is it a um, I beg your pardon. Bone broth or something different? It's, it's it is it's a it's a, a heated broth that is um, portable that you can take. It's sort of an alternative to having when you do intermittent fasting. You tend to drink either plain water or uh -huh. plain tea. Some people drink coffee, but there is controversy there. Some people say coffee is okay. Some people say no. And so I wanted to have an alternative because I did intermittent fasting myself to get myself out of the range of pre-diabetes. That's what I and, Oh, really? And so, you know, talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to help. Um, but I got sick of drinking water <laughs> and plain tea. So I made this broth that um, that is very, it's almost no calories. So, you know, you stay in a fasting state and um, it tastes good. <laughs> And it so does. soon it'll be, Hazi has tried it. And mm -hmm. so soon it'll be on the market. It's called Fast Broth. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. That's that's the first step in actually putting a product out there. So thank you for asking. I'm excited for you. And you've got a customer in me. We'll talk about it. 
Absolutely. Um, we've got like a minute left. We're going into, we're finishing this season up, y'all. Um, when you watch this show, don't fear. We're going to come back for season three. But we're going to get some guests. And, you know, I kind of came out and I came out with a pure heart. To, to podcast and have people come on and tell their stories, but I wasn't really anybody yet. Not that many people wanted to show up and tell mm-hmm. the stories. <laughs> so here we are now. We've got things a little bit different, and we're get, and I want to hear those stories, and I want to hear from caregivers, and I want to hear from survivors, because when yeah. we talk, just like the nurses huddled up for support, yes. we huddle up. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we have to do. That and 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 I was so pleased to hear that be her answer. Talking is the answer, and supporting each other is the answer. And right. uh, so for season three, I hope you will today. You've got to remember to subscribe so that you know when season three starts again. And Ozzy, what would you like to say? And the very and I'm just so grateful that everyone has shown up to watch and super duper grateful as you come on to the, the, the group and participate with us. Because yeah. at the bottom line, I mean, it's very simple. We're all family. And life has given us this incredible opportunity to go through some really horrible experiences in order to come out of the other side with our friends and our family which understand us through and through. That's the thing that we love so much about our work is that we are you. We are literally you. We've, 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 we're going through it as a matter of fact, as we speak. So we're here to love you unconditionally. We do. We do love you unconditionally. And thank mm-hmm. you for joining us. Miss Virginia Garner, you're delightful. We just have to talk in a moment about this fasting. <laughs> I've got tried everything else after the gathering. You, you know, we'll talk. <laughs> but, happy to, happy to. Uh, thank you for watching and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe because I'm not sure exactly when we're coming back with the season three, but we are coming back and we plan to come back. With we have a lot of good, yeah. good plans going to be it's all queued up yeah we're gonna be here for you yeah for sure so um i feel kind of sad i'll miss y'all for a few weeks but you'll see me elsewhere and you all know that i love you so much and whatever yes. you're going through this too shall pass this we too shall you. pass we love you see you thank you for having me thank you for coming <laughs>